Welcome to my series of short podcasts about the stories of the Tudors. My name's Tony Riches and I'm a historical fiction author from Pembrokeshire in Wales and a specialist in the history of the early Tudors. In this podcast, I'll be looking at the life of the fourth wife of Henry VIII, Anna of Cleves. And before I began looking into her story, the few things I knew was that um, Henry approved of Holbein's portrait of her, but was disappointed when he finally met her and called her the Flanders Mare. I had to research her story for my new book, Catherine Tudor Duchess, about the life of Catherine Willoughby, who was the first of the senior ladies to be sent by King Henry with her husband, Charles Brandon, to welcome Anna when she first arrived in England. The shortest reigning of all Henry's queens, I found that it's unlikely that Anna was ever called the Flanders Mare by Henry VIII, as that came more than a century later when Gilbert Bernard, who was the Bishop of Salisbury, wrote in 1679 that Henry swore that they had brought over a Flanders mare to him. Of course, Henry VIII was well aware that Anne wasn't from Flanders, and and we mustn't forget that Bishop Burnet was writing 139 years after the event. One of the reasons you might not know much about Cleves and Anna's home, the imposing fortress called the Schwannenberg or Swan Castle in Cleves, is that it was destroyed in the Second World War together with most of the town. As it had been in Anna's father's time, the castle was in a strategically important location, which is what led to its downfall. 90% of the city was severely damaged in a British bombing raid late in the war in 1945. And interestingly, uh, the chap that ordered it, Lieutenant General Brian Horrocks, um, was in charge of what was codenamed Operation Veritable. And Horrocks later admitted knowing that Cleves was an important historical German town with a lot of civilian men, women and children. And after the war, he suffered nightmares about the loss of life in Cleves. The Swan Tower has now been rebuilt as a geological museum. And it's possible to see how the original castle had a commanding view of the Lower Rhine, although, sadly, Anna wouldn't recognise much of the town now. Heather Darcy also explores how Anna influenced her stepdaughters, Elizabeth and Mary, and the evidence of their good relationships with her. It's even been said that Anna was something of a role model for both of them, and perhaps particularly for Queen Elizabeth. The other new book is the fourth in Alison Weir's Six Tudor Queens series, and that's called Anna of Cleves, Queen of Secrets. Alison's book is based around what she calls Anna's Guilty Secret, which we'll come to uh, later on. Anyway, to return to Anna's story, she was born at Berg Castle near Dusseldorf, probably on June the 28th, 1515. And that would make her about 24 years younger than Henry VIII. Now, that might be considered quite a 
big age difference now, but in Tudor times, of course, it was nothing to remark upon. Uh, but importantly, uh, it does show that she was really um, quite young in relation to him and in terms of her future role. I remember being taught at school that Anne of Cleves was a poor choice of wife for the king, uh, but her father was the Duke of Cleves, who was a powerful and influential man, and her mother was a duchess, which means, of course, that Anne was born a duchess with a place in the succession. So, really, we could call her um, Duchess Anna, but we don't. Unluckily for Anna, it was thought unnecessary for her to learn English or Latin or even French, so although she could read and write in German, her education seems to be limited really to how to run a household and a bit of needlework. By the way, um, Germany as we know it now didn't really exist at the time. So there was a sort of confederation of dukedoms and principalities and states of which Cleves formed an important part. And it's interesting to note that Anna and her sisters were raised by her mother and her ladies. And of course, this put her at a great disadvantage later on. She seemed happy enough in her castle with her sister Sibylla, who later became Duchess of Saxony, and her younger brother Wilhelm, who was to become the new Count of Cleves when their father died. And interestingly, he also... Uh, acquired the nickname later on as Wilhelm the Rich, uh, which it could have been a lot worse, couldn't it? Anna also has a younger sister, Amalia, who Wilhelm kept at his court to look after his four children, and sadly she never married. So after Henry VIII's third wife, Jane Seymour, tragically died in 1537, Thomas Cromwell was tasked with finding the king a replacement wife, as well as a suitable husband for his daughter Mary. And it always struck me that Cromwell wasn't a great choice of matchmaker. He would have given you a wry look if you asked about courtly love, as his first considerations would be political, and then religious, and then financial. Anna arrived in England just after Christmas on the 27th of December 1539. Winter wasn't the best time to make the long journey and she had to make a dozen or so stops on the way. But she was welcomed in Calais by Thomas Seymour and Cromwell's son Gregory. And they reported that they were a bit surprised because uh, she invited them to spend the evening with her playing cards, which wasn't what they expected, and they wondered how the king might react if he found out about it. Anyway, I'm pretty sure that uh, Anna would have been impressed when she saw the fleet of ten ships moored in Calais Harbour, because they were all decked out with banners and gold, and they fired a salute of 150 cannons to welcome her to, to Calais. Although I think she might have suffered a little on the Channel Crossing, it was a rough winter and it was probably the first time she'd ever been at sea. But she landed at Deal in Kent at 
5pm on a stormy winter's evening and was taken to Deal Castle to rest after her long journey. When she got there, she was visited by the Duke of Suffolk, Charles Brandon, and his wife, Catherine Willoughby, and they told her she would meet the king at Greenwich Palace at a formal reception, but she was to be taken by surprise because on New Year's Day, 1540, while Anne was resting at Rochester before travelling on to London, an excited Henry VIII turned up. He seems he couldn't wait for his bride to arrive in London and decided to um, surprise her in disguise. Now, accounts of this first meeting vary, but Edward Hall's chronicle says, The king, which sore desired to see her grace, accompanied with no more than eight persons of his privy chamber, and both he and they apparelled in their marble coats, came to Rochester and suddenly came to her presence, which therewith was somewhat astonished. But after he had welcomed and spoken to her, she was most gracious and loving countenance, and behaviour to him received him and welcomed him on her knees, whom he gently took up and kissed, and all that afternoon communed and devised with her. I'm not quite sure what devised with her means, but this is so different from the many more fanciful accounts, including um, that of Ambassador Chapuis. It does make me wonder which version is closest to the truth, because we remember that Edward Hall was writing at the time of the meeting, and he was a lawyer with a reputation for getting his facts right. So some of the other accounts, such as that of Chapuis, uh, might have been deliberately making a good story. And it's easy to see how tales of this first meeting might have been embellished with the benefit of hindsight. As we know, Henry decided he didn't want to marry Anna after all. And unfortunately, there was nothing much he could do about it unless he wanted to risk offending Anne's brother, the Duke of Cleves, and jeopardising the new treaty that they were agreeing. So the marriage went ahead, and it's been suggested that King Henry suffered with impotence on his wedding night, and poor Anna, of course, had the blame. But I believe that Henry had been advised that one of the quickest ways to have his new marriage annulled was through non-consummation, which of course is what he did. So Anna's marriage to Henry only lasted until July 1540, just six months, and she must have feared for her life. Uh, she seemed greatly upset, and it's reported that she wailed and screamed when Charles Brandon um, had to notify that she was no longer queen. In a letter to Henry from Anna, dated the 11th of July, 1540, um, she says this, Though it be determined that the pretended matrimony between us is void and of none effect, whereby I neither can nor will repute myself for your grace's wife, considering this sentence whereunto I stand, and your majesty's clean and pure living with me, Yet it will please you to take me for one of your humble servants, and so determine of me as I may sometimes have the fruition 
of your most noble presence, which as I shall esteem for a great benefit. So, my lords and others of your majesty's council, now being with me, have put me in comfort thereof, and that your highness will take me for your sister, for the which I most humbly thank you accordingly. She signed the letter, Your Majesty's Most Humble Sister and Servant, Anna, the Daughter of Cleves. Scholars have suggested that these words were drafted, in fact, by Cromwell, in an attempt to make amends. But Anna's reward was a generous settlement of £4,000 a year, as well as Hever Castle, which of course was Anne Boleyn's childhood home, as well as the Palace of Richmond, Henry's father's palace, and Bletchingley Manor in Suffolk, which was only 18 miles from London, was the former home of the executed Sir Nicholas Carew. Now, Anna was allowed to continue seeing Henry's children and became known as the king's sister. And the settlement Henry gave Anna made her very rich and one of the foremost ladies at the English court. And of course she owned it all in her own name, which was rare for a, a Tudor woman. Thomas Cromwell paid for his mistake with his life and was executed without a trial on the 28th of July 1540. At the same time as King Henry VIII was marrying his fifth wife, Catherine Howard, one of the youngest of Anna's ladies-in-waiting and the niece of the powerful Duke of Norfolk, Thomas Howard. I promise to return to Alison Weir's new book on what she calls Anna's guilty secret because there are old rumours that Anna had a child and I remember reading Eustace Chapuis, the imperial ambassador, reporting to the emperor on the 11th of December Two honest citizens were imprisoned three days ago for having said, since the Queen's misbehaviour was published, that the whole thing seemed a judgment of God, for the Lady of Cleves was really the King's wife, and that though the rumour had been purposely spread that the King had no connection with her, the country might be asserted she was known to have gone away from London in the family way and had been confined last summer, a rumour which has been widely circulated. There is no evidence that she gave birth to any children, never mind the king's son, I think we would have heard about that if she had, and the argument that Henry could tell when he first saw her that um, she was already not a virgin, was too convenient for me. What I find interesting is that the best part of 500 years later, these stories are still being repeated, and I can't help wondering what Anna would have made of that. Although she was the shortest reigning of all Henry's queens, she outlived them all. My new book... Catherine Tudor Duchess, which features Anna's arrival in England and her short marriage to Henry VIII, will be available in the autumn, and links to all of my books can be found on my website at tonyriches.com. Thank you for listening.